I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Can you name a few different types of wetlands? I'm asking because the ecosystem of wetlands is crucial to some of our most treasured drinks. We've got marshes, lagoons, mudflats, and you guessed it, bogs. It's the funnest wetland to say, bog, and also one of the most important types of wetlands in our history. Bogs are unique ecosystems characterized by constant wetness, high soil acidity, and low soil fertility. The plants that can grow in this environment are slow-growing mosses, berries like lingonberries and cranberries, and unusual carnivorous plants that cannot get enough nutrients from the soil, so they've evolved to consume insects for fuel. Ew. A bog environment is anaerobic and highly tannic. Low oxygen, tannins, acid, and the absence of fast-growing plants make conditions for the creation of peat, and also for the preservation of history. Peat, of course, is used in producing scotch whiskey and a few other drinks, like some beers. But beyond what peat gives us today, bogs are artifact treasure troves. And through bogs, we can peer directly into the past and grasp how people lived, ate, and drank thousands of years ago. All sorts of vessels have been uncovered that have barley and mead residues. Now, how did all this mead and beer get into the bogs? Well, some archaeologists think that people dumped it in the bogs on purpose as a sacrifice. But life wasn't all fun and games throwing pots of mead into the sleepy bogs. In the Iron Age, conflicts between the Romans and the Gauls escalated, and the beverages they chose to drink helped to define their social status. Romans, for instance, would drink wine, the sophisticated drink of the time. But the Gauls, the Gauls, they drink mead, mead and more mead, seasoned with all sorts of bog plants, such as berries and bog myrtle. Historians and archeologists have identified a pattern of binge drinking and dancing. These people knew how to party, but they also knew how to fight. And they earned reputations as barbarians from their Mediterranean neighbors down south. These wild warriors would sack cities and drink all of the undiluted fermented beverages they could find. 
In fact, this period of history is probably why beer holds an almost pejorative position in our culture compared to wine. If those Gauls had been better behaved, we might be pouring Grand Cru Saison or Mead today instead of wine. Not only were these Gauls pretty wild when they drank, but they had mustaches that would filter out all of the flotsam and jetsam that floated in their mead and beer and grog. And it got me thinking, is history repeating itself? Is the hipster mustache more practical than previously assumed? Are these guys self-filtering the unique beers they consume? And if we uncovered artifacts from a bog a few thousand years from now, would our descendants find flannel shirts, duck boots, and Polaroid cameras? Well, we'll just have to wait to find out. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand egon mueller here from the egon mueller Fine, good in the Tsar. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Nice to be in New York again. Nice to have you here. Your family winery has multiple parcels, but you're really associated strongly with the Schwarzhofberg, the vineyard in the Tsar. Um, what's it like to be so closely thought of for one vineyard, and what's that vineyard like? I see it the other way around. Uh, it's a vineyard that has always been there, and it's a vineyard that is uh, responsible for what we are making, and uh, uh, we are just uh, uh, trying to live up to it. And what does that mean on a daily basis for you? Well, it's work, and... Uh, Sometimes people say great wine is art, but I see it uh, more like conscientious work on a day-to-day -day basis. Small things each day. Small things each day and attention to detail and uh, hard work, often enough. So how did you get there? Your father returned from the war in 1945. That's right. And uh, at that time, uh, all the... You could probably say the whole region has suffered a lot uh, because it was not just the war, it was a big crisis of the 1930s and uh, there was a long time of uh, neglect, if you 
well, you couldn't probably call it neglect, but um, essential things were missing, like fertilizer sprays and that. And then during the war, there was a big shortage of uh, labor. Um, and uh, <clears throat> around Wiltingen, there was also some fighting because there was a bridge that uh, uh, the Germans defended until the last moment. And uh, so. Uh, when my father came home from the war, there was an American fighter plane still in the middle of the vineyard. And the first vintage, uh, 1945, was um, 1,200 liters total. And your grandfather had died early. Yes, he died. In, he was wounded in the First World War. So he was not drafted uh, for the Second World War, and, but he died in a tractor accident in 1942. So your grandmother had run the estate? Yes, yes, together with her daughters, and uh, uh, it must have been a tough time. When your dad came back, he arranged to buy more parcels? Not right away. In the first years uh, until uh, probably 1947, it was very much like um, barter deals. Uh, he had a tractor and he would drive wood for people of the village uh, in order for them to come to help during the harvest and things like that and um, I think he bought the first vineyards in 1954 when he acquired half of the Legale estate which was it, it still is a small estate and it only has about uh, two hectares of vineyards and uh, it was it belonged to the Legale family and uh, half of the estate still belongs to the descendants of the Legale family. So um, I have just a few years ago, I, uh, I signed lease for 99 years. And um, well, because they are still co-owners, I like to keep the label alive. Where are those vineyards situated in relation to the Sharsaf Park? Uh, well, they are right on the Zar River. Uh, the vineyard is called Wiltinger Braune Kup, and it's in a bend of the Saar. Uh, it's called Wiltinger Saarbogen, and uh, to the right you have the Kanzemerberg, and to the left you have Wiltinger Gottesfuß, and so you have really a very well-protected vineyard, uh, which has a uh, fairly warm microclimate for the Saar region. The Schwarzafberger is not right on the river, so it's no, a little Schwarz different. The Schwarzafberger is in the side valley. Uh, we cannot see the Zar River from the vineyard, and uh, it's also fairly high in altitude. The parcels tend to vary in the Schwarzafberger, is that correct? The high well, parcels is, are a little different yes, than the low. Yes, uh, you could say there's a big difference between uh, the east and the west, uh, the east being a little bit flatter. Um, uh, also the slate is different. Uh, in the west we have a very weathered decomposed gray slate and in the east you get more uh, what we call gray wacker. I think it's the same word in English. And most of your parcels are in the west? No, we have parcels everywhere. And um, it, normally we tend to uh, prefer the western part over the eastern part and we, we tend to prefer the middle over the lower parts and the higher parts but 
uh, it really depends on the years. For example, in 2003, uh, some of the best wines came from the eastern parcels. That may have been because of the kind of unusual heat that year. Yes, probably. And you also have an ungrafted parcel yes. of very old yes. vines. Yes, and that is uh, essentially located in the middle of the vineyard. So it's not only very old, but it's also in some of the best parcels. Multiple producers make wine from the Scharsafberg that are ultimately related back to your family tree where, you know, there was some seven grandchildren at, at one point and they each divided it a part of the vineyard. How do you see your wines as different than others? Because, you know, in a way you make uh, product wines, Cabernet Spate Lesa, House Lesa, and some prefer to make dry wines uh, from the Scharsafberg. What, what is it? that you see is well there you have you have touched one important point um it is as a style and the style is really what uh, the winemaker is responsible for um, if i wanted to i could probably also make dry wines but i think that ultimately the quality of the Schatzhofberger shows best uh, when you have a little bit of residual sugar and uh, when you try to balance the acidity with uh, just a little bit of sweetness. What does sugar do besides the sweetness and the balance? Does it do anything to the f flavors? The way I see it, it really is what offsets the acidity. As I said before, uh, Schatzhofberg is not on the Saar River and it's uh, fairly high in altitude. So um, it's a rather cool vineyard and we get very high acidity even in years like 2003 and um, so probably the wines really benefit from a little bit of sugar uh, even in warm years. What is the difference in terms of, of flavor signature between gray slate and then the bluer slate? Blue slate is something that I don't have. I don't really have vineyards with blue slate. Um, we have the red slate in Wiltingerbraune Kup, and we have the grey wacker in the eastern part of the Schatzhofberg. And you could probably say that uh, grey wacker gives you more upfront fruit, and um, the red slate gives you warmer wines in a way, uh, more body, whereas the gray slate uh, gives you minerals. It's very decomposed and, and you have a lot of minerals in the soil from the decomposed slate and some of that goes into the wines and uh, from there into the grapes. What I've read is that you have at different times planted to different densities in the vineyard when you've replanted. How to the different densities compared to some of the older parcels, to things that you've done over the years? Essentially, uh, we do plant wider today because it allows us to work with machinery. In the old vineyards that are planted uh, one meter by one meter, we cannot bring in any machinery. We have to plow with winches and uh, all the rest of the work is done by hand. So it's very costly and uh, labor intensive and in order to be able to afford it, even given our prices, 
we have to have some other vineyards that are less costly to work. Because there are other sites that you own that are not Schardsaufberg that are also not individually labeled on bottles that maybe go into a QBA? Yes. We have the Wiltinger Braune Coop, uh, which is labeled under Le Galais. And that is also, it's, it's a very steep vineyard and uh, there's only a very small part that we can uh, work mechanically. And after that, we have uh, one and a half hectares in Saarburg. Used to be Saarburger Antoniusbrunnen, but it has recently been renamed to be Saarburger Rausch. And uh, that has been planted in 1999 and 2001. And uh, it has been planted in order to be uh, effectively worked, uh, mechanized. Then we have half an hectare in Wiltinger Braunfels, um, which is also two meters by one meter, uh, but it's quite steep and it's difficult to work uh, with even with machinery. And then we have one hectare in Oberemmler Rosenberg, which is uh, to the eastern side of Schatzhofberg, uh, actually right next to the Schatzhofberg vineyard. And um, that is uh, quite well mechanized. With the Schatzhofberg, in some years, you're known for ice wine. In some years, you're known for BA. In some years, even TBA. How do you see the differences between, say, ice wine and wines with botrytis? And then how do you see the difference between something like a cabinet and something with more botrytis? Well, as a winemaker, probably uh, the biggest achievement that you can uh, have is making TBA. Because in order to make TBA, really everything has to come together. You need a great vineyard, you need a great vintage, and uh, you need a lot of skill. And you need to uh, take some risks. Ice wine, on the other hand, is uh, uh, more like a game of chances, if you will. Uh, you, I like to say that um, if you have made your decision to leave a certain parcel of the vineyard for ice wine, all you have to do is get up early. So from a winemaking standpoint, it's probably not as big a challenge as TBA. And so for, for me, I prefer the TBA or the Botrytis wines in general over the ice wines because I see the uh, work that has gone into them and um, <clears throat> the risks that we have taken. But uh, for the consumer, it's probably a different story. And uh, sometimes people tend to prefer the ice wine because of its uh, very uh, linear structure and the way that the acidity really is uh, quite upfront and really setting off the sugar. Both TBA and ice wine are, if ever, only produced in small quantities. And our bread and butter wine is a cabinet. And the cabinet is, um, if you will, it's a quite unique style it's not it cannot be reproduced anywhere in the world so more and more i'm becoming proud of our cabinets and in a way it seems more difficult to produce even in germany with climate change in some regions 
for us in the Tsar, we have a cool climate. And um, if I think back of the 1980s, where uh, at least half of the years were complete failures, where the grapes didn't ripe, ripen properly, um, I think we still have a long way to go for nature not allowing us to produce these wines anymore. But um, yes, you could say in a year like 2003, when you have cabinets that uh, run to 11% of alcohol, it's probably not the cabinet that um, we used to produce in the earlier days, but still you have this flavor profile that you expect in a cabinet the ripe grapes that are not uh, marked by overripeness. You just have a little bit more alcohol and maybe a little bit less acidity. So uh, I'd prefer uh, once in a decade, a year like 2003, over a year like 1980. So you joined the winery after study at Geisenheim. You get there in 85. You're... Father Egon Mueller III hands it over to you in 91, although he sticks around and helps until his death. And no one, since 85 to now, what are some of the vintages that have really stood out for you? 2005, certainly. Um, <clears throat> I think that 2005 probably is the best vintage that we have ever made in, in our estate. Uh, small yields very high sugar levels, but at the same time, a very high acidity. And um, probably 2010 comes very close. And uh, 1999, it's very... If you look at Botrytis vintages, it's uh, probably at the same level as 1976. And then you have the years where uh, the grapes ripen without botrytis, and uh, it looks as if 2012 might be one of the classics one day. 2009, 97 also. We have recently been very lucky with good vintages. And 90 was a vintage that didn't have much botrytis, is that correct? 90 is a great one, yes. Uh, 90 is also a year with very little botrytis and very high acidity. And it has been labeled a great vintage from the beginning and um, the wines have taken a very long time to come around. And it looks as if they are not, if they are just now coming into their own. <clears throat> so speaking of that, in general, if I were to buy a a cabinet, spate lace or house lace from Egon Mueller, Scharzhafberg. When should I think about opening it? You know, is there a general guideline or does it really depend on vintage? No, no. There's, I cannot give you a general guideline because there are so many factors that come into play. Uh, the first, of course, is your own taste. There are people who like the wines young with all the primary fruit. Um, there are people who like old wines and there are people who like very old wines. Uh, that is one thing that you have to consider. Then you have to consider where you are, uh, how the wines have traveled, uh, how they have been stored. But if you ask me what I'm drinking today, I still like to have the 71, 76s, 
but uh, they are becoming quite rare now. And what do you usually eat those with, or do you have them by themselves? Well, if you have a 71 or a 76, you don't need anything. It's um, You can just sit back and enjoy it. And uh, Somebody has called these wines meditative. And uh, if you let it happen to you, the wine can really talk to you and uh, you, can, you can talk to the wine and uh, see it developing in the glass and you always find new things. And um, I would really say that it, for, for wines like that, it's probably better to have them just by themselves. With the younger wines, say I were to open up a 99, Cabinet or Spätlese, what should I think about eating that with? Cabinet is probably much more versatile than many people think. And apart from maybe uh, a rare steak, almost anything goes. Perfect, of course, is anything Asian. But I would say that probably with the spicier versions, you'd be better off having a Spätlese. Not a very rich Spätlese, but just to have the, the additional sweetness that you get uh, in Spätlese. And if you want to play it safe, seafood, fish, all kinds of just cooked fish with not uh, without heavy sauces, you can have beautiful matches. So in terms of how the Scharsaf burger is farmed, what are some of the principles that guide how you're farming today? Well, we have been, because we have these old vineyards, uh, we have been stuck with very traditional methods. And for the last, what, 25 years or so, um, we have not used any herbicides. And we have not used uh, insecticides either. But otherwise, I'm still a little bit afraid to go the last step towards uh, being completely organic because in the old vineyards we have to spray by hand. And it takes four people to do the hand spray. And at the same time we have to do uh, the spraying in the more easily workable vineyards with tractors. And so it's, it's uh, something that um, requires a lot of workforce. And uh, often I have to go myself uh, when we do spraying by hand. So I like to do as little sprays as possible because I have to do them and I don't like to work. And uh, so I stick to Mostly I stick to um, <clears throat> chemical sprays and uh, synthetic sprays against mildew and powdery mildew. And that's probably an issue in that, that climate. Well, it is, it is. But um, I get by in most years with five sprays, sometimes six. And in very difficult years, we had to spray seven times, but that's it. And... Um, if I'd be organic, I'd probably need to get the same effect uh, between 10 and 12 sprays per year. So there is a difference here. And, uh, well, you can argue a lot about uh, the benefits of one uh, against the other. Uh, 
What about plowing? How often do uh, you plow? We do a lot of plowing. And um, right now, uh, probably two weeks from now, we are going to do the first plowing. <clears throat> and we can, we can plow depending on the year and uh, the weather up to five times maybe. And what's the benefit of that? First, it is uh, good for the soil. It helps decompose the organic matter. And um, a second is, of course, that we can keep the weeds down. Uh, it allows us to not spray any herbicides. And uh, you can see the soils that have always been plowed. They are just uh, much better than uh, soil that always gets uh, rolled over by tractors. When it comes to harvesting, I imagine that that's somewhat of a trick, given the different kinds of trying to get botrytis. And well, it's, <clears throat> it's tricky, of course. It's probably the most difficult decision and the most important decision uh, you have to take during the year. What it comes down to really is that almost every year we start too early and we finish too late. So was that a factor of just how difficult it is or the size of the team or the steepness of the slopes? Well, it's the size of the team, the, the uh, labor, the selection process that we do. And also when, when you see, when you, when you start picking and you see that the weather is nice, the grapes are getting better, um, riper, then you tend to go slowly to let it happen and then at some point you get uh, bad weather and then you have to finish quickly. <laughs> you see, we are harvesting in... Um, if you had asked me a few years ago, I would probably have said a typical harvest starting day would be 20th of October. And typically we would harvest uh, definitely the first week of November. But recently probably you could say 15th of October to the first days of November so it's very late harvest and um, at that time where we are the days get very short the sun is very low in the sky and if you get a little bit of rain it's very hard to dry again and then if you have botrytis uh, the humidity um, it soaks into the grapes. Uh, if you have just ripe grapes, um, it can drip off, but uh, not so easily with botrytis grapes. So uh, if you get bad weather during harvest, it's really something that pushes you. And what about when the grapes make it to the winery? How do you handle them when they hit the cellar door? Well, we have small trailers to bring the grapes into the winery and um, typically one trailer is about one press load uh, so everything gets pressed very quickly uh, processed very quickly um, we like to crush the grapes if there is not too much botrytis and then press them in a pneumatic press uh, settles the juice for about one day and then rack it into barrels or tanks depending on where we harvest and uh, then do the fermentation with uh, the natural yeasts. And then so you do use barrels and what kind of barrels are, are those like? They're called fooder 
And Fuda is, uh, it refers to the size, and it's a thousand liters. And uh, what we use are old barrels. We, we want them for the physical properties of the wood that uh, allow the juice and the wine to oxidize a little bit. But we don't want uh, the juice or the wine to pick up any flavors from the wood. You're thought to bottle somewhat early in things I've read. Do you feel that you bottle early or? I think we bottle early, yes. Uh, we are going to start bottling next week. And uh, probably by the end of March, we'll have all the 2013s in bottle. And it's a. It has probably changed uh, during the 1950s. Uh, in the old days, the wines would stay in cask until the spring following the next harvest. And um, with the arrival of proper filter to filtration technology, it has been uh, possible. It has become possible to clarify the wines more quickly, and uh, that allows us to bottle earlier. Uh, I think it's, for our wines, it is not so good to keep them in barrel for a long time because uh, as they stay in the barrel, they will oxidize uh, slowly, but they will oxidize and they will lose some of that uh, primary fruit. Probably after 30 years, it doesn't make a lot of difference, but uh, people drink the wines young nowadays and they want this uh, freshness and fruitiness and vibrancy. So oxidation would add sort of a bitter character? Um, I don't think that it necessarily would become bitter. You get some bitter substances through oxidation, but mostly what you lose uh, probably are the very volatile primary aromas. Do you feel like because it's bottled fairly early that the wine does a lot of evolution in the bottle? It has to. More, has to. perhaps more yes, slowly yes. than it would in wood. Yes, probably. <clears throat> Does that add to an ageability as well as primary fruit? I'm not sure. As I said, I think after 30 years, it doesn't make a lot of difference anymore. But um, it's really something that uh, would be nice to try out. But it has been in from the 1950s, 1960s, there are some experiences with that and um, the result was clearly that uh, the wines that had been bottled earlier were the better ages. You found quite a bit of uh, claim for the late harvest wines to regulate some of the most expensive wines sold in the world at auction, you know, at the ring. Why is that that every year they're so, you know, why, why would someone pay $42,000 for a case. Not that the wines aren't great, but do the prices sometimes seem extraordinarily striking? They do, they do. And uh, it's very nice to get these prices. Uh, why does anybody pay anything for? Uh, you, can, you can pay stamps for five cents and you can, pay, uh, you can buy stamps for 100,000. It's... Um, people who collect and who want to have certain things. And it's also the rarity of the wines. And I think that the market 
the demand and uh, the relation between the demand and the quantity uh, is what sets the prices. And if I produce a wine that people want, um, I get a higher price than if I produce a wine that people don't want. So you take over the family winery in 91, and then about 10 years later you start a project in Slovakia. How did that come about? Family, family. It's very difficult to say no to the family. And um, I must say that um when my wife's aunt asked me to look at uh, this property in Slovakia and to uh, see whether it was possible to make wine there, my idea of Slovakia was mountains and snow, and if it had not been family, I would have said, forget it. But um, as it was, I went and uh, I not only discovered that I was completely wrong, uh, it's um, the vineyards are situated next to the Danube River, uh, so it's a fairly warm climate comparable really to parts of Austria, uh, vineyards that are also situated on the Danube River. And um, I fell in love with the people and uh, the area. You originally set out to make a dry Riesling. Yes which is something that you had experimented with at the Scharsofberg and then decided not to do. Well, experimenting is probably not the right word. Uh, it was something that the market wanted. And um, uh, if I think back to the early 1990s, you could not be considered as a top quality producer in Germany if you didn't make dry wines. So at that time, we sold maybe 5% of our production in Germany and 95% of our wines were exported. And we had to make some dry wines just to be ex uh, accepted in the German market. But the last year I made a dry wine from Schachtsofberg was 1998. And uh, I really felt that by that time it was accepted that you do not need to make dry wine from the Schachtsofberg. With Bella, the site seemed more in keeping with an Alsace or Austrian model for you in terms of a dry, bigger style of reason. Certainly uh, because of the climate. Uh, you have a much more continental climate there, which means that, of course, the winters are colder, but the summers can be quite warm. The late season, late fall is normally very stable, good weather. And you can let the grapes ripen to uh, very good sugar levels. And at the same time, they keep um, a very good acidity. For example, 2003 Bela has even analytically higher acidity than Schwarzhofbergers. Really? Yes. And what have you learned? It's been over a decade of working in Slovakia. What have you learned over the period of time? What's revealed itself to you about the wines? Well, there is a very uh, distinctive taste in uh, all the Bela wines uh, that you find in all vin every vintage and it comes from the soil. When I first got there uh, the idea was that the soil was less uh, but now I have understood that less is just the cover that uh, at some 
Uh, it's not very deep either. And um, below that is limestone, and it's it's almost like chalk. And uh, sometimes when you taste the young wine, it can almost remind you of uh, the flavors that you get in Champagne. I find the wine very different than the Schwarzsaufberg wine. Yes, and uh, I'm to me, I don't know about uh, geology, but uh, from my winemaker's standpoint, uh, limestone and slate are on the opposite uh, sides of the spectrum. Slate is a very acidic soil, so if you don't, uh, we are forced to add um, maybe every three, four years uh, some... Um, limestone to it in order to keep it from going too sour whereas uh, with limestone it's the opposite problem sometimes you can get ph levels that are so high that uh, um, you can see it on the wines that they suffer from the high ph levels so are you saying you needed to get a good source of both to bring some limestone into the so you needed the Slovakian vineyards? No, we, it, it has been a practice that we have you know, since I was a child. It was always um, I don't know the proper term, but we add uh, chalk to the vineyards routinely. And how have you found the the, the Bella wines to age? Well, um, it. Last year I tasted the 2001 vintage, which is the first year that we have made Bela, and it was a Botrytis wine. Uh, so it was quite a big wine, uh, sweet, and um, it's probably further developed than 2001's from Schachtsofberg, but uh, that said, it has uh, kept up quite nicely. Your Egon Mueller the fourth. your dad was the third, your grandfather was the second. Of course, your great-grandfather was, was the first. When did you know that wine was going to be a part of your life? Was that a given from the beginning? Or when did you make that decision? I guess it was a given from the beginning. I was born more or less, uh, not exactly in the winery, but uh, I spent all my youth in the winery. And I was always uh, next Egon. And what was your dad like as a guy? Um, well, you could probably say that he was a very stern character, um, but uh, uh, he was very straight too. And uh, I got along. We had a very strict upbringing, if you will, but uh, I got along with him very well. And uh, we really worked together from '85 until. 2001 when he passed away and he was still helping me quite a lot when uh, he was not doing anything on a day-to-day -day -day basis but he was there and um, <clears throat> I was the first generation to travel for the wines uh, so when I was gone traveling I was always certain that uh, the work at the winery would go on properly because there was uh, uh, an eye that saw everything. You know, you went to Geisenheim. Were there things that you didn't learn at Geisenheim that your dad really made clear to you in terms of running a wine estate? Well, my father never had a formal education as a winemaker. Uh, when he came back in 1945, he was 
26 years old and uh, there was no time to go to university or uh, take time off to learn and all he had were two winter courses that they did at that time for the people who had returned from the war to give them at least a basic understanding of the workings of things and so he that's why he always did things in a very traditional way and he never really uh, accepted the new developments <clears throat> which was together with the fact that he was 40 years older than me um, it gave me the chance to really jump one generation and uh, not to do all the things that in the late 60s and 70s uh, people did thinking that it would make their life easier and that were accepted by the markets at that time but in the long run proved um, quite uh, detrimental to both the quality of the wines and uh, the acceptance in the marketplace and that eventually led to the downfall of German wines. And you had a new cellar master start work in 2000, Stefan Fabian? Yes. And what was that transition like? Your dad dies a year later, uh, new cellar master. How did you approach that? Uh... Probably very naively, and also probably quite luckily. <laughs> because it turned out that the new cellar master was, um, uh, he's, he's a very good cellar master. And uh, <clears throat> could have gone terribly wrong, but uh, fortunately it didn't. And you have traveled a lot for the wines. I've met you here in the States before. What was it like? traveling on the behalf of what is thought of as perhaps the greatest German wine estate in an era where German wine is not so recognized in the global market? Well, that uh, at some times it was uh, a little bit frustrating to see people... I mean, there are always uh, people who love German wines and who uh, tried to get other people to understand the quality that was there but uh, the general public really uh, in the 1990s and even uh, you could say until 2005-2007 it was uh, uphill battle uh, recently it has become very different and compared to the 1990s probably today uh, I sometimes have to remind myself that I'm not a rock star. And what do you think that change was brought on by? Well, uh, the hole that German wine fell into in uh, the 1980s after the glycol scandal was really almost bottomless and um, uh, everybody turned away from German wine. Um, so, 20 years and a new generation and um, young people who didn't uh, know the history, who didn't know how it had come to the situation, um, they discovered the wines and they liked them and um, now 
uh, those people who in uh, the 1990s were young and enthusiastic, they are the ones who make the decisions. And uh, German wine is slowly coming back to its rightful place. Has it been stronger in some countries than others in terms of resurgence? That is difficult to say. I was at dinner yesterday and we were talking about the same topic and somehow what it comes down to seems to be that it's the big cities that are leading, which makes sense in a way. You have the avant-garde there, the, the people who want to try something else and uh, go ahead and um, when it's accepted in the city, then it spreads to the country. What do you feel about the, the history of modern German wine law in terms of how it's affected your wines? Has it allowed you to make the wines that you want to make? Have there been times where you felt that it stood in the way of making the wines that you want to make? I was 12 years old when the famous 1971 wine law was passed and I still remember how my father was up against it. Um, probably the biggest failure of the 71 wine law is that it muddled the uh, distinction between um, chapterized wines where sugar is added before fermentation in order to increase the alcoholic strength of the wine and the traditional natur wines, as we call them, where it was strictly forbidden to add uh, sugar. And um, those were the wines that have made Germany great 100 years ago. The wines with no added sugar. The wines with no added sugar. And it was a decision that uh, the growers at that time took knowing that they would have to sacrifice in many years because not every vintage was by itself ripe enough to be bottled non-chapterized. But they knew that the great vintages would be even greater uh, without sugar added and they made the big, big sacrifice to completely forego chapterization. And 100 years ago, an estate like ours was not even allowed to make chapterized wine, to chapterize wine in their own cellars. And uh, my grandfather and my father sold many vintages in bulk because the wines were simply not ripe enough. And after 71, that um, distinction was muddled. And I think today we are getting to a point where it becomes more and more obsolete, per, perhaps, and where sometimes uh, the consumers are not even asked anymore what they want. And by not talking about it, um, the consumers often forget that they have a choice. And what about the next generation at the estate? Well, my son is 13 years old. He's, um, he looks to be a very... Uh, outdoor kind of guy. Uh, he loves to go to the vineyards with me. Um, he's a beekeeper. He has five hives and uh, makes his own honey. And uh, so I have uh, great hopes, but uh, the real decision comes uh, maybe three or five years from now.
And do you think that'll be a decision that he'll have to make? or? Well, um, I think that if the estate is uh, economically viable, then it's a very easy decision to make. Because and to be your own boss, and to be able to make your living producing something that you can be proud of, and uh, that then you can go to sell to the world, uh, it's rather unique. You know, I've drunk a fair amount of wines of Scharzhofberg. They've never failed to impress me, especially uh, yours, which are some of my favorite, and you know, in the world of wine. But I don't understand them at all. Like I don't, I don't know anything about it. Do you know? Like I can know the details, but I don't, I don't really understand how it all comes together. If if you were to tell me a couple of things to help better understand what Schwarzburger brings to a glass, what should I know? How should I know? Now my 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 approach is that uh, it all comes from the vineyard and. Uh, of course, there's always there's a risk that when, when you think like that, uh, that when, when you accept that you don't really understand what's happening, that you can one day make a decision that goes to the root of everything and you don't know it and uh, from the next vintage everything is different. But um, I think that's something I have to live with. And uh, I mean, it's nature, and uh, I'm asking myself why are my wines different from somebody else's wines? Why is it uh, that in Schachtsofberg we always have a quality that we don't get from other vineyards that maybe are climatically superior? it's there, and I have to accept it. I've happily accepted any glass of Egon Mueller wines that have come my way. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Egon Mueller of Egon Mueller at Scharzhofberg. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.